Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we'll be diving yet again into one of my favorite genres, the memoir. This episode is titled My Favorite Memoirs, Chapter 2, as a special little shout out to one of my go to podcasts, My Favorite Murder. If you're listening to this episode close to the time of publication, perhaps you are eagerly anticipating, as I am, seeing the release of the film adaptation of The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls. There's a great article on the Bustle website that I'd like to share to start us off today, and then I'll be laying out my own thoughts and experiences with the book and author. This article is titled, Jeanette Walls Hopes the Glass Castle Inspires Others to Confront Their Pasts and Tell Their Stories, by Christina Ariola. In one of the first scenes of the Glass Castle, Rex Walls, played by Woody Harrelson, forcibly throws his daughter, who can't swim, into the deep end of a pool. On purpose. Not once, not twice, but over and over and over again. Gasping for breath, Jeanette emerges from the final plunge in tears, pulls herself out of the public pool, and runs away from her father. It's sink or swim at its most extreme, but it worked. Jeanette is able to swim her way to safety. It's a jarring scene and an important one, one that perfectly encapsulates the emotional center of the forthcoming movie out August 11th and the memoir upon which it is based, Jeanette Wall's The Glass Castle. It is the story of Wall's dysfunctional, poverty-stricken childhood being raised by two unstable parents, the fiercely intelligent, charismatic Rex, an alcoholic who likely struggled with undiagnosed mental disorders, and Rosemary, a painter who often prioritized her passion for art and adventure over her children. With their four children in tow, Rex and Rosemary move constantly, chasing their next adventure and the next paycheck. The family bounces throughout the Southwest and Texas, and eventually land in Rex's hometown, Welch, West Virginia, where much of the book and movie take place. In an interview with Bustle, Jeanette Walls says the heart of the book, and of the movie, has always been the tumultuous relationship between her and her troubled father, who died in 1994. He loves his children. He loves his daughter, Walls tells Bustle. But he has demons, and he is not fully able to battle his demons, and so he gives his children the tools they need to battle their demons. This sink-or-swim method of parenting, hotly debated in book clubs throughout the country for the last decade, arguably worked. All four children do eventually find their way, each making the move to New York City to pursue their careers. Their parents later follow, living on the streets at first, then moving into a squat on the Lower East Side. Though Walls eventually found success as a journalist, she worked for years as a renowned gossip columnist, she always kept her past a secret from her colleagues and friends. The truth didn't come out in its entirety until 2005, when the book was released. I thought it was so important to hide this thing in my life that I was so afraid of, Walls says. It was such a mistake. You have to be ready to confront your past. I'm on a bit of a mission to help people confront their past if they're comfortable. One of the many things I've learned since telling my story is how many people walk around hiding their past, thinking they're damaged or inferior because they have this wacky past. She adds, People are kinder and more empathetic than we give them credit for. 
And if you're in a position where you're able to open up about your past and your story and you let your defenses down, then other people will too. Though there are more than 6 million copies of the book in circulation worldwide, the movie is an opportunity for Wiles to share her story even more widely. The magic of storytelling is that it creates these connections, Wiles says. That's why I'm so ecstatic that this is being turned into a movie, because there's a lot of people who don't read, and I think my book has helped a lot of people confront their stories. Though it's been over a decade since the book was released, Walls is still very much in the process of confronting her own story, particularly her relationship with her father. While visiting the set of the movie, Walls experienced an intense emotional breakthrough. She says that she started crying as she watched Woody Harrelson playing her father and Brie Larson playing her act out one of the most gut-wrenching scenes of her life a nasty feud between her father between father and daughter that concludes with her leaving home for good. It was surreal. It was an out-of-body experience. They were on script and then they went off script. Woody was saying things that my father had said that I had never told him, she says. Harrelson comes over and he gives me a big hug, and I was in such a state that I started apologizing to him for what I had put him through. You had to do it, honey, Harrelson told her. You had to do it or we wouldn't be here. It was a magical moment, she says. I was being absolved for this thing I had done to my father 40 years ago. Wall speaks often of the emotional intelligence of the cast of the movie, particularly Harrelson and Larson. Harrelson, she explains, had a tape of her father that he watched to get the voice and gestures down, but after that, he stopped listening and stopped watching. He didn't want to mimic her father, he told Walls. He wanted to become him. She is equally impressed by the talents of the screenwriter and director, Destin Daniel Cretton, who was the the driving force for the narrative of the movie. A lot of great books get made into mediocre movies, Wells said, but some books get made into movies that help them reach a wider audience. When Wells first wrote the book, she says she fantasized that a rich kid would read this book and be inspired to treat those less fortunate than themselves with more empathy. Now, she says, her dreams have become a little more ambitious. She hopes that her book gives hope to kids like her. That dream, she tells Bustle, has already been realized in so many ways. Not long after the publication of the book, Walls attended an event where she was met with readers from both sides of the so-called tracks. On one side, there was a popular cheerleader, the rich kid, who told Walls the book helped her understand why she shouldn't tease one of her classmates, a girl with out-of-date clothing and funky hair. On the other side, there was a young man, the poor kid, who told Walls, much to the chagrin of the woman standing behind him in line, that her book was a fine white trash story. What he was telling me was, I didn't know there were books for people like me, Walls says. These are just a few of the stories from the years since The Glass Castle hit shelves. In that time, the author has met countless readers who have come to some greater understanding of themselves and others through the book. I was so prepared to be met with contempt and ridicule that I saw the world as a place filled with potential enemies, and now I see it as a place filled with potential friends, she says, because people do understand. They get it. Sometimes they get it better than I do. In a way, it seems that the book, her life story, has transcended her altogether. I don't think it's even about me anymore, she says. It's just about getting out this complicated story for people who might need to see it. Honestly, reading that article and the previews for the film made me want to reread this modern classic, but I also feel compelled to share my own strange, surreal, wonderful experiences with this book.
My mom is the first person who recommended it to me. Not sure when, but I remember a kind of, oh, that's nice, I'll check it out, and then I promptly forgot to do so. This happens a lot, incidentally, and when I do get around to reading things she's recommended, I'm usually mad I waited so long. Sorry, Mom, I'm learning. (laughs) Uh, Skip forward a few years, and I'm living on my own in my first teaching job in a tiny little town called Jefferson, Texas. I'll be honest, there were some not great things about living and teaching in that tiny town. The incident where some of the students were planning on releasing an alligator in the school over the weekend as a prank springs to mind. But on the whole, it was a very positive experience and helped shape me into the person I am today. So I'm thankful. Plus, it had a Carnegie Library still in operation. According to Wikipedia, it's one of only four in the state of Texas still operating as a public library. Side note. Carnegie Libraries are awesome and beautiful and such a cool idea. Andrew Carnegie provided the funds and support for thousands of them to be built worldwide. If you're curious to learn more about this awesome project, I've included some links in the show notes. I just had to throw you throw that in there to let you know how cool it is that this teensy little town has an operating Carnegie Library. Side note part two, when I was offered the job in Jefferson, one of the first things I remember my mom telling me was that it had a Carnegie library. The fact that she knew that and used it as a selling point for why I would love the town just makes my heart so happy. So back to the story. I'm living in this small town and I hear that Jeanette Walls is publishing another book, Half Pro Courses, and I decide it's about time I gave the Glass Castle a try. I walked to the library one Saturday morning to see if they had a copy, and here's where the story gets a little surreal for me. It's a signed copy. I distinctly remember opening the book in the sunlight pouring through one of the windows and doing a double take when I saw Jeanette Wall's signature inscribed on the title page. I have my theories of how an author-signed copy of a New York Times best-selling memoir ended up on the shelves of a tiny library in a tiny town. You see, for years, this tiny town was also host to the annual Girlfriend Weekend, a huge celebration and book festival drawing hundreds of book lovers each year from all over to celebrate. The woman behind this phenomenon, Kathy Murphy, kind of reminds me of a mix between Dolly Parton and the character she played on Steel Magnolias. Side note, if you haven't heard about the great work Dolly Parton does to promote early childhood literacy through her nonprofit Imagination Library, I'm including the link in my show notes because it's awesome. Dolly Parton has the voice of an angel and does amazing things for other people. Coincidence? I think not. So, Kathy Murphy is herself an author and has her own memoir that will be published in the second updated edition soon. I'll post links in the show notes because she is quite a character and worth checking out. She's also the reason, I think, that an autographed copy of The Glass Castle ended up in the Carnegie Library of Jefferson, Texas in the first place because, you see, Jeanette Walls had been a featured guest at Girlfriend Weekend in the past. Kathy Murphy is also the reason I got to take some of my students to meet Jeanette Walls and present her an award for her novel Half Bro Courses at the Girlfriend Weekend in 2011. My school's librarian had gotten 100 copies of The Glass Castle that year through the American Library Association and asked me if I'd like to use them for my classes. I jumped at the chance thinking it would be a great experience for my students, and I still think it's one of the best decisions I ever made as a high school English teacher. 
I read a short excerpt from the beginning of the book to each of my English classes one day after checking out a copy to every student. After I was done, I told them that I would be giving them an outline of their reading assignment the next day and not to worry about reading it for homework that night. Most of them actually began reading silently to themselves in the last few minutes of class that day, which for teenagers, uh, if any of you have been around them, know that that's fairly rare. Um, the next morning, while I was on hall duty, one of my struggling students came bounding up to me before the bell. This is a child who, just weeks before, had lamented that they were too stupid to graduate because they couldn't read well and didn't like it. It broke my heart. The same student was now grinning ear to ear and couldn't wait to tell me that they'd read all the way to page 30 the night before of their own volition. It's still one of my favorite teaching memories. I told Miss Walls that story the first time I met her, and she was so gracious and lovely about it. I know there's that saying that you should never meet your heroes, but I've been so fortunate to meet some truly amazing individuals who were everything I'd hoped and more. Miss Walls said she could tell just by talking to me that I was a good teacher, and I've been tempted to put it in my CV ever since. So I'd like to share with you the section of the story that I read to my students that first day back in Jefferson. I hope you will enjoy. The following is an excerpt from the opening chapters of The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls. Please note that there is some strong language in this selection, so if you would prefer to skip, that is totally understandable. I was on fire. It's my earliest memory. I was three years old, and we were living in a trailer park in a southern Arizona town whose name I never knew. I was standing on a chair in front of the stove, wearing a pink dress my grandmother had bought for me. Pink was my favorite color. The dress's skirt stuck out like a tutu, and I liked to spin around in front of the mirror, thinking I looked like a ballerina. But at that moment, I was wearing the dress to cook hot dogs, watching them swell and bob in the boiling water as the late morning sunlight filtered in through the trailer's small kitchenette window. I could hear Mom in the next room singing while she worked on one of her paintings. Juju, our black mutt, was m watching me. I stabbed one of the hot dogs with a fork and bent over and offered it to him. The wiener was hot, so Juju looked at it tentatively, but when I stood up and started stirring the hot dogs again, I felt a blaze of heat on my right side. I turned to see where it was coming from and realized my dress was on fire. Frozen with fear, I watched the yellow-white flames make a ragged brown line up the pink fabric of my skirt and climb my stomach. Then the flames leaped up, reaching my face. I screamed. I smelled the burning and heard a horrible crackling as the fire singed my hair and eyelashes. Juju was barking. I screamed again. Mom ran into the room. Mommy, help me, I shrieked. I was still standing on the chair, swatting at the fire with the fork I had been using to stir the hot dogs. Mom ran out of the room and came back with one of the army surplus blankets I hated because the wool was so scratchy. She threw the blanket around me to smother the flames. Dad had gone off in the car, so Mom grabbed me and my younger brother Brian and hurried over to the trailer next to ours. The woman who lived there was hanging her laundry on the clothesline. She had clothespins in her mouth. Mom, in an unnaturally calm voice, explained what had happened and asked if we could please have a ride to the hospital. The woman dropped her clothespins and laundry right there in the dirt and, without saying anything, ran for her car. 
When we got to the hospital, nurses put me on a stretcher. They talked in loud, worried whispers while they cut off what was left of my fancy pink dress with a pair of shiny scissors. Then they picked me up, laid me flat on a big metal bed piled with ice cubes, and spread some of the ice over my body. A doctor with silver hair and black-rimmed glasses led my mother out of the room. As they left, I heard him telling her that it was very serious. The nurses remained behind, hovering over me. I could tell I was causing a big fuss, and I stayed quiet. One of them squeezed my hand and told me I was going to be okay. I know, I said, but if I'm not, that's okay too. The nurse squeezed my hand again and bit her lower lip. The room was small and white, with bright lights and metal cabinets. I stared for a while at the rows of tiny dots in the ceiling panels. Ice cubes covered my stomach and ribs and pressed up against my cheeks. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a small, grimy hand reach up a few inches from my face and grab a handful of cubes. I heard a loud crunching sound and looked down. It was Brian, eating the ice. The doctors said I was lucky to be alive. They took patches of skin from my upper thigh and put them over the most badly burned parts of my stomach, ribs, and chest. They said it was called a skin graft. When they were finished, they wrapped my entire right side in bandages. Look, I'm a half-mummy. I said to one of the nurses. She smiled and put my right arm in a sling and attached it to the headboard so I couldn't move it. The nurses and doctors kept asking me questions. How did you get burned? Have your parents ever hurt you? Why do you have all these bruises and cuts? My parents never hurt me, I said. I got the cuts and bruises playing outside and the burns from cooking hot dogs. They asked what I was doing cooking hot dogs by myself at the age of three. It was easy, I said. You just put the hot dogs in the water and boil them. It wasn't like there was some complicated recipe that you had to be old enough to follow. The pan was too heavy for me to lift when it was full of water, so I'd put a chair next to the sink, climb up and fill a glass, then stand on a chair by the stove and pour the water into the pan. I did that over and over again until the pan held enough water. Then I'd turn on the stove, and when the water was boiling, I'd drop in the hot dogs. Mom says I'm mature for my age, I told them, and she lets me cook for myself a lot. Two nurses looked at each other, and one of them wrote something down on a clipboard. I asked what was wrong. Nothing, they said. Nothing. Every couple of days, the nurses changed the bandages. They would put the used bandage off to the side, wadded and covered with smears of blood and yellow stuff and little pieces of burned skin. Then they'd apply another bandage, a big, gauzy cloth, to the burns. At night, I would run my left hand over the rough, scabby surface of the skin that wasn't covered by the bandage. Sometimes I'd peel off scabs. I couldn't resist pulling on them real slow to see how big a scab I could get loose. Once I had a couple of them free, I'd pretend they were talking to each other in cheeping voices. The hospital was clean and shiny. Everything was white, the walls and sheets and nurses' uniforms, or silver, the beds and trays and medical instruments. Everyone spoke in polite, calm voices. It was so hushed, you could hear the nurses' rubber-soled shoes squeaking all the way down the hall. I wasn't used to quiet and order, and I liked it. I also liked it that I had my own room, since in the trailer I shared one with my brother and my sister. My hospital room even had its very own television set up on the wall. We didn't have a TV at home, so I watched it a lot. Red Buttons and Lucille Ball were my favorites. The nurses and doctors always asked how I was feeling and if I was hungry or needed anything. 
The nurses brought me delicious meals three times a day with fruit cocktail or jello for dessert and changed the sheets even if they still looked clean. Sometimes I read to them and they told me I was very smart and could read as well as a six-year-old. One day, a nurse with wavy yellow hair and blue eye makeup was chewing on something. I asked her what it was, and she told me it was chewing gum. I had never heard of chewing gum, so she went out and got me a whole pack. I pulled out a stick, took off the white paper and the shiny silver foil under it, and studied the powdery, putty-colored gum. I put it in my mouth and was stunned by the sharp sweetness. It's really good, I said. Chew on it, but don't swallow it, the nurse said with a laugh. She smiled real big and brought in other nurses so they could watch me chew my first ever piece of gum. When she brought me lunch, she told me I had to take out my chewing gum, but she said not to worry because I could have a new stick after eating. If I finished the pack, she would buy me another. That was the thing about the hospital. You never had to worry about running out of stuff like food or ice or even chewing gum. I would have been happy staying in that hospital forever. When my family came to visit, their arguing and laughing and singing and shouting echoed through the quiet halls. The nurses made shushing noises, and Mom and Dad and Lori and Brian lowered their voices for a few minutes. Then they slowly grew loud again. Everyone always turned and stared at Dad. I couldn't figure out whether it was because he was so handsome or because he called people pardoner and goomba and threw his head back when he laughed. One day, Dad leaned over my bed and asked if the nurses and doctors were treating me okay. If they were not, he said, he would kick some asses. I told Dad how nice and friendly everyone was. Well, of course they are, he said. They know you're Rex Walls' daughter. When Mom wanted to know what it, was, what it was the doctors and nurses were doing that was so nice, I told her about the chewing gum. Ugh, she said. She disapproved of chewing gum, she went on. It was a disgusting, low-class habit, and the nurse should have consulted her before encouraging me in such vulgar behavior. She said she was going to give that woman a piece of her mind, by golly. After all, Mom said, I am your mother, and I should have a say in how you're raised. Do you guys miss me? I asked my older sister, Lori, during one visit. Not really, she said. Too much has been happening. Like what? Just the normal stuff. Lori may not miss you, honey bunch, but I sure do, Dad said. You shouldn't be in this antiseptic joint. He sat down on my bed and started telling me the story about the time Lori got stung by a poisonous scorpion. I'd heard it a dozen times, but I still liked the way Dad told it. Mom and Dad were out exploring the desert when Lori, who was four, turned over a rock and the scorpion hiding under it stung her leg. She had gone into convulsions and her body had become stiff and wet with sweat. But Dad didn't trust hospitals, so he took her to a Navajo witch doctor who cut open the wound and put a dark brown paste on it and said some chants, and pretty soon Lori was as good as new. Your mother should have taken you to that witch doctor the day you got burned, Dad said. Not to these heads-up-their-asses med-school quacks. The next time they visited, Brian's head was wrapped in a dirty white bandage with dried bloodstains. Mom said he had fallen off the back of the couch and cracked his head open on the floor, but she and Dad had decided not to take him to the hospital. There was blood everywhere, Mom said, but one kid in the hospital at a time is enough. Besides, Dad said, Brian's head is so hard I think the floor took more damage than he did. Brian thought that was hilarious and just laughed and laughed. Mom told me she had entered my name in a raffle at a fair and I'd won a helicopter ride. I was thrilled. I had never been in a helicopter or a plane. 
When do I get to go on the ride? I asked. Oh, we already did that, Mom said. It was fun. Then, Dad got into an argument with the doctor. It started because Dad thought I shouldn't be wearing bandages. Burns need to breathe, he told the doctor. The doctor said bandages were necessary to prevent infection. Dad stared at the doctor. To hell with infection, he said. He told the doctor that I was going to be scarred for life because of him, but by God, I wasn't the only one who was going to walk out of there scarred. Dad pulled back his fist as if to hit the doctor, who raised his hands and backed away. Before anything could happen, a guard in a uniform appeared and told Mom and Dad and Lori and Brian that they would have to leave. Afterward, a nurse asked me if I was okay. Of course, I said. I told her I didn't care if I had some silly old silly old scar. That was good, she said, because from the look of it, I had other things to worry about. A few days later, when I had been at the hospital for about six weeks, Dad appeared alone in the doorway of my room. He told me we were going to check out Rex Wall's style. Are you sure this is okay? I asked. You just trust your old man, Dad said. He unhooked my right arm from the sling over my head. As he held me close, I breathed in his familiar smell of vitalis, whiskey, and cigarette smoke. It reminded me of home. Dad hurried down the hall with me in his arms. A nurse yelled for us to stop, but Dad broke into a run. He pushed open an emergency exit door and sprinted down the stairs and out to the street. Our car, a beat-up Plymouth we called the Blue Goose, was parked around the corner, the engine idling. Mom was up front, Lori and Brian in the back with Juju. Dad slid me across the seat next to Mom and took the wheel. You don't have to worry anymore, baby, Dad said. You're safe now. For me, this first, uh, this opening section, which is actually not the very opening of the book, um, there's another part where Jeanette Walls is on her way to a party and sees her mom in uh, New York on the side of the street dumpster diving that comes before that. Um, this, This section of the book really illustrates the functionality or dysfunctionality, if you will, of this family. And I've heard Jeanette Walls speak herself about how she views her family as a source of love um, and how she loves her parents. And um, basically, she said she wouldn't change how she was brought up because it made her the person that she is today. And I think that's so beautiful. Um, because she really is quite a resilient character. And if you read the novel or see, uh, not the novel, sorry, if you read the memoir or see the adaptation, you will see what a strong individual she is. Um, And I think it's so inspiring that she has been proved wrong in her fear that this would open up a world of enemies and instead has opened up a world of friends. Um, I think it's really beautiful that the opening, her, her dedication of the book is to her husband, to John, for convincing me that everyone who is interesting has a past. She does indeed have a past, um, but it has made her an incredible human being and an incredible writer, and I am so thankful that she has shared that story. And I just think of the students who have read it that I think have been moved by it in different ways, um, 
And I'm hoping that this film adaptation will just spread the story to a wider audience and help more people. So I hope you have enjoyed this week's uh, episode of Blue Stocking. Please, if you feel so inclined, consider leaving a review or rating and subscribing on iTunes. That will help more people find the podcast. Um, I will be posting links and information in the show notes about those things discussed, such as Dolly Parton's nonprofit and the Carnegie Library Foundation. Thank you for listening.